Look forward to that. We, a couple weeks ago, the week before last, spoke on um, some things having to do with our relationship with God uh, and, and how he builds in us, his people, in his church, uh, what he's building, his kingdom here on earth. And one of the foundations of that relationship that he's called us to is the fear of the Lord. Rodney said after the message that that's not a popular topic these days. Frankly, I don't really care. Uh, if it's a scriptural topic, all I'm after for is the truth of Jesus, regardless of whether it's uh, popular. But the reality is, is the way we looked at it, it is for our good. The fear of the Lord is wonderful. It's, it's pure. And we, you may remember, discussed that if this room represented the will of God, uh, and you go through those doors and you're exiting the will of God and some of us can kind of like hang out on the fringes of kind of the will of God and connection with God and if you look at this chandelier that happens not to be lit at the moment if that was God and this room was the realm of his will, his kingdom and, he, and that was him then we want as his followers to be positioned not just in the room, right? but we want to be right under his realm Right, fully as much as we can, we want to be in his will. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As his followers, that's what a follower is. You know, we, we, a believer, what does a believer do? He believes. And a believer has their faith in the one in whom they believe. And so we want to be under his will. And uh, we'll continue to kind of use that illustration a bit this morning. The fear of the Lord keeps us in that place where we don't want to depart from that place. It's one of the things. Another thing, which we're talking about right now this morning, is the goodness of God. A revelation of the simple reality that God actually is good. Now you may say, well, okay, that's, you know, that's quite simple, and it is quite simple. There are so many thoughts and senses that run through our mind and our heart perpetually that are rooted in a belief system other than the simple truth, God is good. And so we're going to be looking at this this morning, specifically perhaps dealing with some of the worries and the anxieties that we walk through on a daily basis. I believe what we're about to talk about potentially can and will revolutionize your life. So let's pray. Lord, we, we do thank you, Jesus. You are the one who said that on this rock, the revelation of yourself, you will build your church. And as we gather together in your name this morning to hear not my words, your words, we pray that you would fulfill that promise. Build your people, your church today. Let the word of God revolutionize our lives. We pray for a renewing of the mind, a breaking off of thought patterns that are not rooted in your truth and displace those this morning, Lord, with your truth that your people would be free in Jesus' name. Amen. God is so good, you don't have to worry. <laughs> so here's what we're going to be looking at over the, over the next couple minutes. It's the goodness of God that leads us to living under the chandelier. 
everybody still remember what I, the, the, his will. It's not an issue of I'm so good that I live right under that chandelier representing God I, because I am such a good Christian. It is because I have come to see he is so good. And despite the fact that I'm not so great, I mean, there's stuff in me that is counter to his will and his ways. Despite all that, despite the fact that I'm not worthy, I've seen him, and it's because of that that I, my, I put my trust in him. It's all him. So what we're talking about this morning is not like positioning yourself on how to be a good Christian. It's hopefully unveiling the person of Jesus and the fact that he is not what sometimes your heart wants to make you think he is. And now I know theology, theologically we all believe that God is good all the time, God, all the time God is good, whatever. It's, it's more than this. It's seeing him for who he is. So I'm, I'm already preaching and I'm just supposed to be telling you what I'm about to tell you. We're going to be talking about the goodness of God that leads you to that place under that chandelier. And here's some kind of steps. And, and it is steps. I try to avoid the 12 steps to being free, but it is steps. The first step to walking in God's goodness in such a way that we don't live in anxiety and fear and worry is to accept, to not accept worry as your address. It's not your home. And you got to accept that. You and I have to accept worry is not just the way it is. It's unfamiliar territory to the believer. And then secondly is to identify what is your fear. Jesus sometimes would ask a demon-possessed person for that demon to identify themselves. And it is important in becoming free to identify what is the lie that's operating in your heart and in your mind. Identify what is that fear. Thirdly is to recognize and to confess God's goodness in place of that fear. And then lastly is to make sure you're postured like a beeline under, underneath that chandelier. Anybody not know what I'm talking about when I say the chandelier? Just want to make sure that it's clear. Don't be embarrassed. We're talking about the will of God. So this week, I woke up one morning, and I was going through, and I, man, I've got stuff going on. If you don't know, I'm, I'm also a, a realtor, and I've got deals going down, and some of them are commercial deals, and, and I've got two closings, and I'm trying to enjoy my time away with my family, but meanwhile, there's like deadline stuff, and there's stuff happening, and then my buyer did something that kind of messed things up, and I've got to fix up his mess, and I'm trying to you know, have a conversation with my family. I haven't seen them in 12 years, and I'm getting texts, and I'm doing all this stuff, and, and I woke up this, uh, the morning that I got back, and I've got two big closings coming up this Friday and at the very end of every, you know, that's when all this, you know, all the deadline stuff creeps to the surface. I have reasons to be concerned and I woke up and I had this sense of dread. Have you ever had that like during your course of the day? I, in South Africa where we lived for eight years, we called it a niggly, just that little niggly feeling that you have in your heart. But for me, it's like cold and icy in your heart. And you have this thing and you're just like, oh, like a pit in your stomach almost, like, oh. You know what I'm talking about? And I had that. And uh, the reality is that I would say most days, truth be told, at some point I'm going to have something like that. Most days. So if you feel like you have those things happening, 
Does that mean you're not a good Christian? No, it means you're a human. We all deal with anxiety, fear, and worry. And so what, at some point during the course of that day, I, something rose up inside of me that said, wait a minute, I don't have to go through the rest of my day with this pit in my stomach. What is that thing? And let's deal with it. Because if, if the Bible is true, and if what I know about Jesus is true, actually, he is way bigger than anything that I can face. And so let's look at this, the mechanics kind of, of, of living in the truth of God's goodness. First is to not accept worry as your home, as your address, as I said. You've got to, we, we consciously, in the middle of that moment of fear and worry, that pit in your stomach, to consciously realize that that is not your inheritance. That is not your place. That's not God's will for you. And when you realize that, something opens up that though I feel fear, I feel dread, I'm feeling these feelings, despite my feelings, there is an alternative reality open and available for me. I may not know how to get there. I may not know. None of that matters. Knowing that the freedom is there, the other reality is there, is the first step. To not accept uh, fear and worry. There was a time uh, years ago when, I was, when we were being trained in, in, towards ordination into full-time ministry back in Georgia. And at that time, I was also involved kind of in real estate-related industry doing mortgage financing. And I remember, uh, and I've told some of you this story before, that uh, there was one particular day, Peter had just been born, and now I'm like responsible for a baby and a wife. And like, I had all these deals, and like one by one, they were falling through. Like, you know, this, one of these people pulling out, underwriter, uh, uh, dis, dis, uh, disproving. What am I trying to say? It does. Denying is the word. It's a big word, isn't it? Denying uh, alone. It was like thing after thing. And, and as this is happening, I am just beginning to see my life crumble before me. Like the end is nigh. Like I'm seeing visions of like Peter, he, he died from starvation. We lost our house to foreclose. Like it, my world had, I, I was sitting at the desk and in my mind like it, this is it. Like it's over, you know. And at that time things were kind of tight. And um, anyways, and it's like all of my source of income, God's my source, but I was looking at this as my source, was all falling through. And I remember at some point I got up and said, I'm not going to live under this. And so I went into the boardroom and I just started walking around the boardroom table. I locked the door and I just began to pray. And, I, and, and, and I, what rose up inside of me was Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. And I began to respond in obedience to this word. And, uh, but in, in everything, through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. So I began to ask God for uh, my, my request. What is my request? My request is that like, I don't suffer financial ruin. You've given me this job. My request is that somehow I generate deals that are going to meet our family's needs at the time that we need it. My request is, you know, that all those things. And, and I began to make my request, and it says, make a request known with thanksgiving. And so I began to thank God before I even had the answer. I just began to thank him. God, you're faithful. You didn't lead me to this place to ruin me. You're with me. I began to thank him. And as I did, 
a sense of faith began to rise up. And on the back end of the faith rising up, I began to get creative ideas on how to deal with each of these uh, borrowers and their deals. And I started like thinking all these things and I started seeing the opportunity. I sat back down at the desk and it was like a couple little shifts and the whole ship turned around. I ended the day with like moving towards greatness, whereas in a few hours earlier, I had thought literally we were gonna suffer ruin. So that first step is not accepting fear and worry. Do you know it is a lie? And the lies of the devil aren't full 100% lies and there's no truth rooted in them. The lie of the devil is 90% truth. That's how it has teeth in your heart. But the 10% lie cloaked in 90% truth gets you to bite it and eat it, digest it, to your own ruin. And so, if you can just look with me, don't accept worry as your address. I just referenced one scripture, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And if you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And a few verses down in verse 31, he says, so do not worry. And then in verse 34, he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. What's the common thread you hear in some of these verses? It's a command. Now, this isn't about, again, religious performance, that if you're suffering with anxiety and fear and worry, it means you're not a good Christian because Jesus said, do not worry. It's it's telling us as children of God to rise up in the face of very real worry and fear and even dread sometimes to make a choice, I will not live here. Don't just take anxiety, recognize that there is better for you and fight. Fight the fight of faith. And now we're going to get into a little bit of how to do that. Second step, first you recognize not going to live at this address. Second thing is to identify what is that niggly. In, in my, as I was walking around my house with the anxiety earlier on Friday of this week, I, I, all I knew is that I had this ugh, like ugh feeling. But when I decided that I'm not going to live, that there's something not right about that, I had to identify what is that ugh feeling coming from. Here's the thing. That thing that you're feeling, that dread, that sense of fear, is rooted in a core belief about something. You may not be consciously aware of it. In your heart, you are believing something other than God's goodness towards you. And to recognize, what am I believing? In that particular sense, I was believing that God would not be with me to see me through the complications of the loans, the, the abundance of things that I had to do to get these deals that I was working on uh, to get through, that he wouldn't be with me and that there was going to be like all this stuff go wrong and that he wouldn't be with me. So that's what I had to identify. That's what's bringing anxiety to me. Identify what the niggly is 
what is the core expectation and belief? So let me give you some sample nigglies. I'm going to bring some South African culture over here to Detroit. Is that okay? It'll be a church who says niggly. Actually, don't do that. Let's talk in a way that makes sense to Detroiters. Here's some sample nigglies. Big decisions on the horizon that you just don't know which way to turn can sit on your heart like an elephant. Perceived pending financial doom. Another one would be an upcoming big moment or event that you're going to have to do something that you're anxious about can sit on your heart like an elephant. Or people's perceptions of you. Anyone ever been there? You have an encounter with people and you start thinking, I, I said this, I wonder what they think about me, and what are, they, what are those people, what did she mean by that? And what Play mess with your head. Cause stress in your life can turn around in your head and cause feelings and you don't even stop and realize the lies that are floating around with, with, without hindrance. Fear of what might happen. It's like there's this recorder that goes off in our heads, maybe some of us more than others, that we kind of feel like there's a waterfall in front of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to fall over. That waterfall, I'm dead. Like something, it's just going to, it's all going to explode. It's going to be a mess. Just this fear of what could happen. Now listen, I want to be real here. Some of us can deal with clinical depression and anxiety, as in there is a chemical imbalance in our body that causes us to feel anxiety and depression. And my, my, my belief is this, is I believe in God's healing power. I also believe in Tylenol sometimes knocks a headache out. And so if I have an issue, I'm going to trust God for healing, and why not pop a Tylenol in if I have that? And if we need some antidepressant or anti-anxiety, and that's proven to help balance some of the chemicals, take that. But it is not an either-or. It's a both-and. And while we uh, can be helped by medicine, we do it in the context as a believer of fighting the good fight of faith and trusting in God. And so let's move on to that third step. Recognize and acknowledge and confess the truth that will displace the lie that you've been believing. Remember that fear, that anxiety is rooted in a core belief inside of you that's actually a lie. And the only way to overcome a lie, and everything the enemy does in your life is rooted in a lie. That's the only power he has, which actually is no power at all. It's a twisting of God's truth. And it will all come to an end one day, but sadly in this hour, in this age, we are bombarded with lies to our hearts to twist the truth and get us to believe it and get us to live anything other than what Jesus has purchased for us, which is abundance of life. The only way to overcome lie is truth. It's 
That's why the only offensive weapon in the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 is a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, truth. The only thing that's going to overcome your battle. And this is my favorite part of what we're talking about uh, this week, just of this today, is these three points. So there's tons of stuff that we could talk about with regards to God's goodness, but I'm just going to look at three things that broadly will probably apply to most of our fears and anxieties and worries. The first is that God is leading you into good. Remember that chandelier? There's a thing inside of us that feels like I don't want to be under that chandelier because I'm not going to get what I want. And the reality is no one knows what you really need more than him. And that when you posture yourself to follow him, yes, it is a thing of faith. Yes, maybe instantaneous gratification does not happen. That may be true. Ultimately, he leads you into the very thing that is most fulfilling for you, the purpose and calling that he gave you in your mother's womb. He is leading you into good. And as a biblical type and pattern of his leadership of his people, look with me to Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. The people of God, the, the nation of Israel, had been in slavery in a place called Egypt for a long time. They were under fierce taskmasters, Egyptian. They were slaves, and they were beginning to cry out to God to deliver them. And God, of course, speaks to a guy named Moses, and he says this to Moses in verse 8 of chapter 3. So I have come down to rescue them, being the people of Israel, from the hand of the Egyptians. He came to rescue. I want you to take note of that. God comes to rescue you and me. Does that sound like he's bad? Does that sound like this chandelier thing is going to be a bad thing? I have come down, not to correct my people, not to show them how awful they are, not to show them how awesome I am. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the, the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that idea of milk and honey is it's above and beyond even what we need. Above and beyond even just manna which feeds us and gets us through, I'm leading them into a, a place where there is an abundance this, my friends, sets the pattern for God's, the nature of God's leadership to his people. Is he's leading us into a place that's good for us. Look with me. Well, actually, don't look with me right now, but you can turn to Matthew 11. We'll go there real, real fast. But have you ever considered, honestly, like what the early disciples following Jesus, what they would have felt like having left their family, in the case of many of the apostles, having left their livelihood, like their whole future was set up by dad, who was a fisherman, and they left dad's boat to follow Jesus, leaving behind all of the guaranteed kind of dependable source of income, not knowing what the heck they were going to do with the rest of their lives. You realize Matthew the tax collector, leaving behind his source of income, not knowing how this thing was going to work. You realize that. Following Jesus is not just a walk-through, easy, 
the, the roses, it's, it's sometimes huge leaps of faith. And these guys had left everything, and they left parents. I'm sure the family member said, what are you doing with your life, son? And they followed this guy, Jesus, see the amazing things that he did, and it ends with him being taken by the authorities, totally humiliated, beaten, and then hung on a cross, dead. The whole of Jerusalem saying, see, if you are the son of God, save yourself, mocking him. Can you imagine the lies bombarding the disciples saying, what have we done? We know we saw miracles being worked, but he's dead. Like, game over, what do we do? The dread that they must have felt. Peter being, saying that he was going to deny him three times before the cock crows. Denied him three times. Depression. Judas running and hanging himself. Bad time. Right? They were feeling like game over and it was just a few years later that they still stayed in that same city and people from surrounding regions were streaming and bringing their sick to those very same individuals that even the shadow of Peter touching them would heal them. Fame of what had happened through this group of people was spread around. In the moment of your and my game over moment where it looks like utter destruction is imminent, God sees a way to bring you into the fullness of his purpose. And so look with me to Matthew 11, because some of you still don't believe me that God is leading us into good. Matthew 11, the end of that chapter, verse 28, Jesus says this, come to me. That's chandelier language. Come to me. Don't be afraid. You're believing all these lies that are getting you to want to run over there. Just come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will teach you how to be a good Christian. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am your authority. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That place that we're afraid of standing under, this is what it looks like. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anyone in here believe that God is actually leading you into good yet? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Triumph. In the moment that they thought game was over, God had his redemptive plan and was not intimidated at all to bring his people into triumph. Not, 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 not uh, 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 survival, triumph. So what do we do with this? I'd say we get under that chandelier. We seek him, and can I say we wait on him. We wait on him because we, we have to hear him. We want to hear him. But even having heard him, even having done what we, uh, he, he tells us to do, then there is a waiting in the doing of what he's called us to do. Because here's the deal, the devil will lead you to do something that is instant gratification on the front end, but destruction on the back end. 
God will most of the time lead us into something that feels like death on the front end, but is resurrection on the back end. And it's in the waiting and not becoming faint, but keeping your eye on the one who is leading you and trusting in him regardless of what circumstances look like. My faith is resolutely in you. You will see breakthrough. So the first thing is that God is leading you into good. The second thing is that the first goodness of God thing that can displace the lies is to simply know that his leading you is into good. But the second thing is that he will never leave us or forsake us. Again, cliche, I can say that. You can say, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know we know that, but we forget it every day. He he, it's not just that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is, for every person who's received Jesus, intrinsically intertwined with our being, so much so that he cannot, he is one with us. Have you received Jesus? You become born again. His spirit becomes your spirit. He is, your, your innermost being is God himself in you. He will never leave you. He is you. Now, I know that that theology may seem unfamiliar. It's biblical. He be, you become one through Jesus with the Godhead. He's in you. So he will never leave you. That, that following God has always included him not leaving us. So look at me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 6. You may remember the story. They have left Egypt. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Moses has died. Joshua is raised up as the next leader. He's the one who will champion the cause of bringing the people into the promised land. And God says this at the end of Deuteronomy to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, speaking of the giants that are in the land. For the Lord your God... He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave nor forsake you. My friends, there, in, in the times of despair and dread, when circumstances seem to indicate that you are toast, your feelings, my feelings, are not that God is with me. Our usual go-to place is this feeling right here, that God is somewhere out there, and he's like holy, and he's like deity, and he's God, and he's out there, and I'm over here, and I'm not worthy, and I'm, I'm human, and, 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 and I've I probably done something bad, and so he's like over there, and I may or may not ever connect with him again. Anybody ever had these kind of feelings before? The moment you and I receive Jesus, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you believe, regardless of any of that, the reality is that he is in you, with you. To illustrate this point, Jesus, you know, when he was, he saw the multitudes at one point in the Gospels, and it says that he had compassion on the multitudes, and then he began to ask his disciples, said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. And the very next thing that he did was he sent his 12, two by two, into every city and town where he was about to go, and they went out and he gave them power to, 
to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to preach the gospel, and they went out and did that. You guys remember that story? And then they do this, like, apostolic, you know, translocal ministry tour, and they are seeing revival happening, and demons are being cast out, and they come back, and they're full of joy, and, uh, and they see Jesus, and start telling him what happened, and he says, hey, well, boys, come, come along and come aside and rest for a while. And I'm sure they were like, yes, Jesus, I love you. We're beat, we're tired, we've been doing your work, we, we did apostolic work, we need to go rest for a while. Let's go hang with our buddy Jesus. And so they get in a boat just to avoid the multitudes because Jesus is looking after these, uh, after these guys, knowing that they need some rest. And so they're like, oh, Jesus, just us and you. This is like sweet one-on-one time, thank you. And they're in this boat, and the multitudes are so excited about Jesus that they start to run ahead by foot to where Jesus is taking them. So that when Jesus and the 12 arrive to the shore, the multitudes are already there. And can you imagine the conversation going down? They're all like, okay. He said, let's go aside and rest a while. So I'm sure he's still going to honor his word, right? Like, you know, we're still going to rest. And And then he gets out of the boat. What does he do? He starts to preach to them. I'm sure the disciples are like, oh. Uh, yes, let's minister. Uh. And so they do this thing, and, and it's going on for a long time, and, and he eventually has to multiply fish and loaves to feed the whole multitudes. And, and that thing is done. He incorporates them into, into the work of passing it all out. I'm sure they were excited, but they were probably beat, right? And at the end of this thing, he goes up into a mountain and says, boys, why don't you go on the boat to the other side of the lake? He gets his rest, Boys, you, and, and, and what it goes down that night in the lake? Storm. So much so. Now, how many of you know that sometimes Jesus will lead you into a storm? The thing is, he never leaves you. He physically had left them. But the Bible says that when they were on the brink of death's door, that's my words, They were about to die. In the third watch, which means somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Do you think these guys were tired? How do you think they felt about Jesus' presence in their lives? He's up there resting while they're out in the storm about to die, thinking Jesus has left me. Anybody ever been in a storm and you feel like Jesus has left me? He came walking on the water. In that moment, they freaked out, thought he was a ghost, called out to him. Peter walks in the water. That whole thing goes down. He speaks to the storm and says, be still, and they marvel at the authority. Now, why did Jesus decide to be up in the hill and to send them out into the storm? He needed them to have an experience for what they were going to walk into in the rest of their lives, that they know that when Jesus, and when it feels like he is nowhere to be found, he is not only watching me, but he is there with me with authority to calm anything that comes my way. And that story is for you and I to remember as well. That no matter what storm you and I face, he is watching, he is in you, and he has power over it. Jesus can't leave us because it's his identity. In Matthew 28, 20, he said to go and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah, 
chapter 7, verse 14, written 800 years before Jesus would be born, it said, Isaiah prophesied this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Who are we speaking about? Jesus, and he and, and, uh, shall call his name Emmanuel, which simply means, as most of you know, God with us. And you notice that Jesus' name isn't Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. What the Bible's talking about is his core identity. He shall be called God with us because it's the core of who he is, God with you. (laughs) He didn't like change his mind sometime after the resurrection. He is God with you. It's who he is. Feelings don't recognize that, but the truth is he is with you. So what do you do with that? Take heart. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what truth you think you're perceiving, take heart that he is with you and he is for your good with you. And then lastly, God is so good that he sees you in Christ as good. I know this is striking a chord in most of our hearts because most of us are so aware of why we're not worthy. And are we right? Yes. That's why it's so deceptive. We're aware of our wrong heart attitudes. We're aware of the mistakes and the sins that we've done. We're aware of all the things that we collectively say we cannot approach God really. There are other people who can approach God because they're somehow, I don't know how, more holy than me. I can't because I'm, 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 I'm just not. I want you to hear this scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. When Jesus went to the cross, he became like all of our sin in that he received the wrath and punishment of God towards sin on our behalf. But wait, it doesn't stop there. There's more. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He put our sin on Jesus that his righteousness would be put upon us so that everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus and places their faith in him receives the Holy Spirit into themselves. And by the way, that spirit is not just a spirit, it is a Holy, holy, holy spirit. I thought you would know how to finish it yourselves, but I'll, I'll say it. That holy spirit becomes your spirit. It is holy. Therefore, there is a part of your innermost being, your innermost being, not a part of it, your innermost being is holy. But I sinned last week. Sure. In your flesh dwells sin. 
in your soul, which is your mind and will and emotions, it's still being conformed to become the image of what is inside of you by the Spirit, but the Spirit is in you, and it is you. It's a part of you. God sees you as holy. Are you following that? Because of that, regardless of what my flesh and my soul have done to disqualify me, my spirit that I receive simply by placing my faith in Jesus gives me access to God. I don't even have access in one sense. I know I do have access, but in a sense, God's already in me. I know that there's an element of approaching the throne of God with boldness, but there's a sense also of I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. We spend all of our energy trying to reach out to the God who's out there who probably doesn't really like me, but maybe if he's feeling good today, maybe if I haven't done too much bad stuff the past couple days, I can approach him and he'll hear me when in fact God is already inside of me. It's not a matter of getting him to, he loves you. (laughs) He's happy. He finds his home in you and likes it there, as you and I were talking about yesterday or whatever day it was. So God is so good that he actually sees you in Christ as good. Can I tell you this? Because I dealt with this earlier on in, in my Christian life, that constant sense of not feeling righteous enough to approach God's throne let me just end it for you here. You're never going to get there. You'll never be righteous enough to stand in the holiness of God. You'll never get there. You'll never feel it. And to believe that he doesn't accept you because of your unrighteousness is actually an affront to what Jesus accomplished at the cross, the exchange of your sin for his righteousness. In other words, it pleases God for you to be audacious enough to actually believe that because of what he did, not because of what you've done, what he did, you now have complete access to the Father. Let me make it clear. We don't have access to God so that we can come and tell him everything that we need and everything that we want and blah, 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 blah. We have access to God that we stand under his chandelier, bending our knee to his lordship, surrendering to him to follow him. And as we do, he is good towards us. So let's kind of look back at what we just said. We don't accept worry as our address. Do you agree? And once we accept that we're not accepting worry, we identify what is our worry. What is the lie, the core belief that we're believing that's not true? What is that source? What is that lie that we're believing? And then thirdly, to acknowledge and confess his goodness. And specifically, we've looked at he is leading you into good, he will not leave you, and he sees you as righteous. Most of our issues are some way countered by those three truths. If we can just believe that. He's leading us into good. He's actually not leading us into punishment and blah, blah, blah. He's leading us into good. He's not going to ever forsake us and leave us on our own. And he actually sees us as righteous, and therefore we're, we can approach him boldly as, as children. And I would just say, lastly, is just to position yourself under the, sh- the chandelier. 
the whole of the kingdom of God is, is wrapped up in this one idea, that the kingdom has a king, or else it's not a kingdom. And the king is the leader of everything and the director of everything that happens within the domain of that king. The way forward isn't just believing that God's good in some kind of vacuum, as though I can do whatever I want and live however I want, and he's just good. He is king. His kingdom is good. And so we want to position ourselves trusting in his goodness to follow him, which is the call of the gospel. Follow me. So the only valid response to God's goodness is to follow him. Would you agree? God's goodness does not exist in a selfish vacuum. It is in the context of his will and leadership. How do we actually know that we're following him? I just want to say three symptoms. I'm not going to preach it. Just quickly say three symptoms that we're following him. Just some kind of heart check. I would say one indicator that we are actually following Jesus is, is that we're trusting in and we're expecting his goodness. Have you ever like faced those impossible circumstances, but there's something in you that just believes God is good, God has a way for me to get through this, and you're expecting it. You don't know how. You still have doubts and fears that come to your mind, but there's, you're, you're beginning to feed a faith that believes that he is with you. That is a sign that you're following him. You're expecting it and trusting in his goodness. I would say another thing is that you become open to whatever he says and however he wants to lead you. In other words, if you're dealing with an impossible circumstance and all you're looking for is him to rescue you on your terms from something you don't like, that's not following him. When you're truly dependent on Jesus, you become open to Jesus, I'm in a mess. I've got to be delivered from these circumstances. Only you know how to lead me. I'm coming to you. I'm not asking you to come to me to bring me to what I want. I'm leaving where I am to go where you want. I'm dependent on what you want. My only hope is your leadership. And then thirdly, and lastly, I would say, reiterating in a lot of ways what I just said, we become dependent on him. That story that I said about Jesus um, walking on water, calming the storm in the seas, proving to the 12 that there, there's never going to be a moment where he forgets you, where he's not watching, where he's not with you. You know what that ends with? That ends with them reaching the other side. When Jesus starts saying this stuff about you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood unless there's no life within you, and all these masses of people who have been following him because he's like got this amazing bread and multiplication of fish, they all leave. They're like, what did he just say? You've got you've to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Like heresy, blasphemy, that is completely against the Mosaic law. He should be stoned. We're not going to stone him, but we're, we are going to leave. And he turns around and he looks at the 12, and he says, are you guys going to leave as well? And Peter says, where else would we go? We have come to see that you are the Christ and you have the words of eternal life. That is how the kingdom of God is built in the earth. When people come to see his words, his words alone are the words of eternal life. Hearing him 
beginning right here. I don't have life anywhere else. Where else are we going to go, Jesus? doesn't matter how freaky what you just said was, and it was freaky. I've got to trust that those words are eternal life. And you and I know the back end of what he was actually talking about. He's talking about receiving him. 